We've been looking at the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews for for some time now. We've reached chapter 9. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1 to 12. We'll go we'll go that far and uh, and then we'll we'll get started. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with, the con- with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption." Okay, in the last few times we've looked at Hebrews, the author's been building this picture. He's got onto this main, one of these main themes of his, of Christ as our great high priest. That Christ is this something or someone far better that has come. We kind of get into that in, at the end of chapter 4, where he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, uh, where are we? Chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And he goes on from there to start comparing Jesus with the priests of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. And we get through, we look at chapter 7 and we see Jesus compared to Melchizedek, the priest who we see, this mysterious character we see in the Old Testament for just a few verses And saying, look, Jesus has come in the order of Melchizedek. Not the same as Aaron and all the priests who came before, but he's come, he's something different. And that kind of leads on to this whole big section that we've been looking at, we started looking at uh, maybe a couple of times ago. Because in chapter 8, verse 1, it comes to this. It's kind of a conclusion of what he's been saying about Jesus and Melchizedek, but also an introduction into what he's now explaining and expanding. 
chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that's a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. And so from that, as we mentioned last time, he pulls out these three different things that, that, that Jesus uh, is, that he's a greater high priest. Why? Well, because the covenant that he is, he mediates is greater because it's built on greater promises. We looked at that last time, looking at this, the rest of chapter 8, that great quote from the prophet Jeremiah. But then also, the fact that he's got a different sacrifice to bring, he comes with a different sacrifice. We're going to look at that another time. But this other point, that he, he serves in the true tabernacle. He serves in a greater sanctuary. The, the priests who served under the old, the old covenant, they served in a copy of the true sanctuary. It was a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And that's what this passage that we've just read in chapter 9 is looking at. The fact that the, the priests of the old covenant, they, they served at a tabernacle. But it was a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Okay, so we're going to look at that today. But this, this very word, tabernacle, what on earth is it all about? He's referred to, yeah, Christ serves at the true tabernacle. And then we see the old covenant has an earthly sanctuary, a tabernacle that was set up. I mean, the, the readers who were reading this first or having it declared to them would have been familiar with it. They would have understood what the tabernacle was all about. Perhaps we may be less uh, clear. For some of us, it may be obvious. For others, it's like, well, what, what is a tabernacle? It can just come across as kind of a big word that gets thrown out there. So what was the tabernacle? Let's have the first slide. The tabernacle was a tent. Oh, sorry, the second slide. There we are. There's our tent. With Anna sat looking very happy. I think that was last year at New Day. But the tabernacle was a tent. It was a tent that was put up first in the desert. We see in Hebrews 8 verse 5, it says that Moses was commanded, uh, was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So it's referring back that Moses, when the Israelites had been led out of Egypt, they'd come across through the desert to Mount Sinai. And Moses was called up the mountain, and part of what happened on the mountain was that Moses was given this this pattern, this template, this this uh, instructions for how he would build this tent. Not this tent. Stay there. <laughs> 
but he was given this pattern. And so Moses was instructed to build a tent. And we see that in Exodus 25. In Exodus 25, we see uh, that instruction that God gives to Moses that the writer to the Hebrews uh, echoes and, and quotes. Let's see if I can get there. Exodus chapter 25. We see that in Exodus 25 verse 8. See, God says to Moses, then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So what God says to Moses is, look, get the Israelites to build this tent, this sanctuary, and what, what's it for? I will come and dwell among them. God tells the Israelites to build a tent, and God was going to come and dwell amongst them in the tent. But we see, the writer of the Hebrews picks up and looks, look, they had this tabernacle, they had this tent, and he, and he gives a kind of brief description of some of the things that were in there, and talks about it. He's, he's echoing again the instructions in Exodus 25. If we look, if we, if we scanned over Exodus 25, we'd see in our modern translations of the Bible, they've put in all these different titles and we see it talks about the ark and the table and the lampstand and, and then talks about the tabernacle itself. It's talking about the different things that the writers of the Hebrews, uh, mentions, but it shows God instructs Moses. He gives him detailed instructions about all these things that were to go into this tent. Can we put the other slide up? In some ways, our tent can be a good picture of the tabernacle. In some ways, bear with me. In that you go into our tent, we see, we see this, this is a picture from my, one of my Bibles at home of the tabernacle. But you can see at the front where this priest is. There's a curtain, and obviously they've cut away so we can see inside. But our tent that we've got, we've got a front door, and we walk into a first room. In the same way, the priest would have walked into a first room. There was this first room that the writer to the Hebrews also explains. And in it, you can see there's a table and a lampstand, or a big kind of candle... What's it called? A menorah? The Hebrews talk about? The Jews talk about? A big candlestick lamp burning, blah, blah, blah. A lampstand. Just stick with the word that's in the Bible, Rich. Stop trying to explain it. And then you see that they can move into another room, right up against the curtain into the, into the, into the room inside. Again, with our tent, we have a room. And then at the back, we open another door and we step into a kind of bedroom area at the back. Now obviously in this case it wasn't a bedroom, this was the most holy place of the tabernacle. We see another curtain, right up against it there's the altar of incense and in the, the, the most holy place of all you see the Ark of the Covenant and the atonement cover on top of it. And Moses is given detailed instructions about all of these things and he's told to build it. He's told to build it. And it's a big tent. I think our tent is quite big, but this is a big tent. It talks about it being 45 feet long. And the, and the most holy place was 15 feet long by 15 feet wide by 15 feet tall. It was a perfect cube. It's a big tent. And it has very specific 
these specific two rooms that were really important. And the whole thing, that when they set up this tent, the whole purpose, which we see in Exodus 40, God tells them, set it up exactly as I've shown you. And then in Exodus 40, verse 34, what happened? They've built the tent. They've put, set it up. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Sorry, he didn't fill the temple. It did later. It filled the tabernacle. And in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they were set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night. In the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So the writer to the Hebrews is just, he, he says, we can't go into these things in detail, but he just sparks their memory. Look, the old covenant had a tabernacle. It had this place, this tent where God dwelt amongst you. God came and dwelt in the tabernacle. And they'd remember these stories of the fact in the desert, the cloud came down and God's dwelt with his people. It's an amazing thing. It's a big deal. This tent where God dwelt with his people. But what does the writer to the Hebrews draw our attention to? He's talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about this tent. But what does he pick up? Again, chapter 8, verse 5. What does he say? This tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of what was in heaven. On into into chapter 9, he also talks about it being an illustration to us. It's an illustration for the present time. The Holy Spirit was showing by this. He's showing the tabernacle shows us great things about the reality of the reality now. So it's a copy. We hear, we hear stories of copies of the real thing. If you watch programs like the Antique Roadshow or something like that, someone brings on some artifact and says, oh, here we are, what's this all about then? And some expert looks and goes, well, yes. Yeah, well, of course, well, if it was a genuine Ming vase, then it would be worth a fortune. But sadly, it's just a cheap copy made in the 19th century and it's probably worth about 30 quid. We see in sports tournaments, you see Andy Murray at the end of Wimbledon standing with a trophy. But then when he goes home, he takes home a small replica and takes it and he can keep that at home. He can't keep the real one, that gets kept. But the, the, the small one, it kind of shows, it's, it's similar, it's the same. It kind of points to the one that he was able to hold on the balcony at, at Wimbledon. I don't know if you've seen the film Catch Me If You Can, which talks of the life of an American man called Frank Abagnale, who basically spent a great portion of his life copying other people. He would forge checks to kind of, to get, he'd say, oh, can I, if I've got one of these checks, I can get money with it, can I? Okay, well, I'll make my own. And made it look exactly right so that the bank went, oh yeah, okay. And he pretended to be a pilot so that he could get free flights to different places. He pretended to be a doctor. He, he managed to, kind of fool everyone that he was the real thing. But he wasn't. Because you see, copies, they look good. They look, they have the appearance of the real thing. 
Sometimes precisely in the minutest detail, like those, those checks must have been so that the bank went, yeah, this looks genuine. And often it can be for bad reasons, like in the case of Frank Abagnale, doing it, tricking people to get, to get money, basically tricking it to get kind of better things for himself. But here we're told the tabernacle is a copy and a shadow of the reality in heaven. It's pointing towards something even greater. It's a copy, but for good reasons. It's showing us, look at the even better thing. The tabernacle, as the author says, is an illustration to us, showing us something. So that's what we're going to look at today. That's what we're going to look at in the next uh, little while. But can we see immediately, even looking, even being reminded, as they would have been, of the tabernacle in the desert, you see immediately, one thing it shows us immediately, that wonderful truth of God coming to dwell with his people. The wonderful glory of God came down and dwelt with his people. But then the writer moves on quickly. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 6. He's talked about, okay, God gave you this tabernacle. He set it up in the way that he said. And then he says, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifice being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. He moves on quickly into what happened in the tabernacle. Yes, we see this tent where God came to dwell with his people, but actually there was a, there was a day-to-day function of the temple that that's where the priests would come. The priests would come, it says, the priests would regularly go into the outer room. They would do the different things they needed to do. We see an example of that with Zechariah, when uh, John the Baptist's father, when he was chosen at the beginning of, of Luke, we see he was chosen, he was chosen by Lot that this time he would be the one who would go in and offer incense on the incense altar. That's one of the things they had to do regularly, they would go in. Also in, in Exodus, we see, uh, Exodus 28, I think, we see that they had to keep the lamps, they had to keep tending the lamps on that lampstand. It was part of the job of what they were doing. And on the table, there would always be this bread of the presence that they had to keep bringing and putting there. There were all sorts of things and all sorts of different sacrifices and gifts that were brought to the tabernacle by the priests. But the writer's homing in on one thing. Yes, the priests came in regularly into the, the outer room. They came in regularly to that first room. But the inner room, the Holy of Holies, Only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. This is what he focuses in on and says, this specifically is an illustration to us. This specifically is, look what the Holy Spirit is showing us here. And that one verse 
is summarising the Day of Atonement. And it's not usual that we would do it, but I'm going to read a whole chapter of Leviticus. It's not often on a Sunday we might get a chapter of Leviticus, but I think it's important for us to just be reminded of... This, is, this talked about what happened on the Day of Atonement. This talked about what that was all about. This one day of the year when God said that the high priest can come and make atonement for himself and for the sins of the people. And this was the one day that the high priest could come in to that inner room, to the most holy place, to the place where God was present. Okay, so Leviticus chapter 16. We may not do an entire chapter actually, but a big chunk of it. Let's just look at this. Leviticus 16 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He's to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. 
No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out having made atonement for himself, his household and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that's before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron's finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goats. He shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place and he's to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his ordinary garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering. Why have I read all that chunk? What do we see? We see on this one day, it's what's summarized in that one verse in Hebrews. On one day, one man can come into the, te- into the tabernacle, into the most holy place, and never without blood. There's this whole set of stuff that Aaron needed to do, and all the priests after him. We see the seriousness of it all. We see that, that this There's nothing casual about this. There's nothing casual about it. That Aaron, before he could come in, even on this one day when he was the one man who could come, he's got to take the right offering and the other, and another offering and be ready with it. He's got to put on the the right clothes. He's got to be ready. Everyone else has got to keep out of the way. And then once he's he slaughtered the bull. He can take the bull's blood and he, then he can go in. And he can go into the presence of God. And, and, and he's got to kind of get this incense burning so it covers the presence of God. So, he won't, so it will shield him from God's presence. There's a seriousness. And a, there's an understanding as we look at the Day of Atonement both of the awesome perfection of God and the idea of a sinful man coming into the presence of the Lord. Do we see the glory of God and the sinfulness of man? The fact, look, if, if even one man on one day was going to come in to the presence of God, this is what had to happen. This is what had to happen so that so that Aaron wasn't going to die in front of the altar. So that the priest, the high priest wasn't going to die in front of the Ark of the Covenant. What we see immediately is this. Can we see it? This parallel. Look how holy God is. Look how awesome he is. And look how incredible it is for, for a sinful man to even be able to come into his presence. We see that in different places in scripture as well. Moses, when he's up on the mountain, he's he's saying to God, this is Exodus 33, he's saying to God, look, 
if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. And God says, okay, I'm going to come with you. What else, Moses? Moses said, let me see your glory. God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to come past, but I'm going to hide you in a rock. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. Otherwise, otherwise, if you see my face, you'll die. But you'll see my back as I pass. Whilst you're hidden in the rock. Isaiah, when he has uh, that vision, he comes in and he's, he's transported into the presence of God. You see in Isaiah 6 verse 5, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. There's an understanding from Isaiah. Look how incredible this is. How a sinful man coming into the presence of God. We see God is holy. God is perfect. How can sinful man come into his presence? And he picks up on two specifics that this shows. The writer to the Hebrews picks up on these two specifics. What does he say? By this, the Holy Spirit was showing us that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. As long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. We can see that. We see that in that whole sense of the Day of Atonement. Only Aaron, or only the high priest... As it was passed on down the years. Only him, only that day, and only after he'd done all of this. Otherwise, you cannot come in. God was dwelling with his people, yet they couldn't draw near to him. God was dwelling with them, and he was leading them through the desert, but they couldn't come near. They couldn't come in to the most holy place. While this tabernacle stood, or beyond that, while the temple stood, while this covenant was being uh, ministered that this was God's dwelling with man this was the situation we cannot come in to his presence only one man on one day and never without blood but further it also shows our need of a better sacrifice the tabernacle shows us that that's what the writer of the Hebrews is showing the need of a better sacrifice, a better high priest, a saviour. What does he go on to say? Hebrews 9 verse 9, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. He goes on, they're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. What we see looking back at the tabernacle was that yes, the priests day by day by day were ministering in that outer room. They were, do, they were coming with, with offerings and bringing the bread of the presence and tending the lamps and bringing the incense and all these things. And every year on that one day, the high priest would go in and make atonement and he would send, we didn't go on to read that those two goats, he'd sacrifice one and he'd send one goat out into the wilderness to make atonement, to, to, to deal again with the sins of the people. But what does it show? The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. 
We see it's a wonderful, the wonderful mercy of God and the grace of God that he even said, okay, on this one day you can make atonement and I'll, I'll wipe out your sins again. But again, next year you do it again. It was amazing mercy even at that. But it didn't, it couldn't clear the conscience. It couldn't change people's hearts. It couldn't, it couldn't fully sort it out. The tabernacle, in short, shows us the problem of our sin. It shows us the problem of our sin, the problem of a sinful people wanting to be with the holy God. But further, it shows us our need of Christ. Yes, it shows us our separation from God, our inability to deal with our sin. But what is the writer saying? He's not just saying, oh, it shows us this big problem. No, it's a copy and a shadow of the things that were to come. A copy and a shadow of the true tabernacle in heaven. A copy and a shadow pointing to something greater. So let's go on. Let's start at verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. I'm going to go on a couple more verses. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? What's he saying? But now, but now Christ has come. But now Christ has gone through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Christ has entered into heaven itself to appear for us before God. And in doing so, Christ has established a new order. Chapter, sorry, chapter 9, verse, verse 10, it talks about those food and drink and various ceremonial washings there applying only until the time of the new order. In chapter 8, verse 13, he talks, when we, which we looked at last time, we see by calling this covenant new, the order that Christ brings in, he's made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. The tabernacle and everything it represented was temporary. So that now, what Christ has done, look at what Christ has done. What we see is that the copy was good, but it cannot compare to the real thing. The shadow of that which was to come only points us to the present reality in Christ. Because he has gone once and for all into the true tabernacle. The priests, they came every year. They kept coming, or they came day by day, and the high priest every year to the earthly tabernacle. 
that pointed to the greater thing that was to come, that Christ would go. And in his death, sacrificing himself, he comes before God, into the perfect, into the very throne room of God, offering himself. It's something so much greater. But what does it mean? What is he saying? Well, look, before, what do we see in the tabernacle? There was no access for us. It was only one day, only one man. It spoke of our need of a saviour. It spoke of the fact that we couldn't come in. But now what is it? We come with confidence. Already quoted Hebrews 4 verse 14. The wonderful truth that therefore since we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Then verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Before, there was ineffective sacrifices that couldn't clear the conscience of the worshipper. Now, what's Christ brought? Eternal redemption. Christ has done it. You see, we can look at the, temp- the tabernacle and think, man, that was hard. That looked like hard work. That looked tough. We can look at the Day of Atonement and think, look at all he had to go through. And we can kind of just come away with a, a, a kind of weak, well, at least we don't have to go through that anymore type of reaction. We don't have to go through all that ceremony. No. Look what Christ has done for us. The wonderful truth that Christ has changed everything. He's brought us forgiveness once and for all. He has done it so that we can come with confidence and find mercy in our time of need. But also before, God's presence on earth, God's dwelling on earth, was in a tent that we couldn't enter. Jesus has changed that. Jesus has changed it. God, Jesus came as God's presence on earth. Jesus came as God's presence on earth. He said that while he was living on earth, but then he's gone to the cross, he's risen in glory and he sent his Holy Spirit. So before God was dwelling in a tent that we couldn't enter. But now by his spirit, he lives in us. He lives in us as a people. Christ by his blood has purified us. So that now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The tabernacle spoke of God's dwelling on earth. But only in this limited way. Now, the Holy Spirit lives in us. The tabernacle spoke of these things. It pointed the way to God. It pointed the way to Christ who was to come. So what for us? I guess there was a clear danger for them that they would cling on to what they'd had previously. And the writers looking say, look, this was just a copy. We put the third picture up, Karis. This was just a copy. This was a picture I took when we were on holiday in Skye several years ago. It was an amazing evening. It was an amazing evening. We stood up above where our cottage was and looked out from Skye across to the Outer Hebrides. And the sun was setting behind it and there was these beautiful colours. But that picture doesn't do it justice. 
by my standards, it's quite a good picture. It's good enough that it's on our wall, reminding us of that time when we were there. But it doesn't do justice to the, the reality of being in that spot, looking out across, that, across the sea, seeing the colours in the sky, feeling the, the atmosphere and the, the particular conditions. It doesn't do it justice. And he's saying to these guys, look, the copy was good, but look what has come now. You can't cling on to that. You can't cling on to second best. For them it was obvious. Don't go back to the synagogue. Don't go back to the temple. Keep following Jesus. For us it's the same. Let's keep following Jesus. For us we can, we can default to a, I'm here but I'm on the edge. I'm here but, and that's enough. I've kind of, I've kind of, kind of I, this is all I deserve. But you see, the wonderful truth is what Jesus has done means that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That we have God's presence amongst us. We don't just come and we hear good truth or we can sing songs. We've got God's presence with us and we can have that all the more. We don't have to sit thinking, well, it's just kind of enough that I've, I'm scraping through. I think God's forgiven me. God's present. What does that say at the end there? How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? God pours out his presence, his spirit into us so that we can live for him, that we can go for it, that we can live for him. As Linda and Rachel between them and that tongue and interpretation. So just look at the freedom, the mercy, the forgiveness that has come to us. That sin has been wiped away, to be, that we can be filled with joy. That we can run into his presence. We can seek his kingdom. We've been brought into something magnificent. And he's going to keep showing us more. Amen. Father God, you show us throughout your words just the wonder of who you are and the utter, incredible, glorious truth that you the holy, perfect God have saved rebellious, sinful people to be your people. To have your presence with us and in us by your spirit. So that where before we were separated from you, where before... There was the glory of your presence dwelling in a tent in the desert. But now you, your presence is in us as a people. And you have dealt with sin. You have done it so that we are eternally redeemed, forgiven, brought in to your wonderful 
family, God. So that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we will find mercy because you are so good, Lord. Amen. Let's worship together.